Welcome to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. It is the last week of August. It is hard to believe we are heading into the final quarter of the year. Um, Or just shy of that. We've got Toronto Film Festival coming up. We've got LA Film Festival coming up. Followed by AFI Film Festival. So it's going to be a busy, busy, busy fall for us. But it's a busy time here at Behind the Lens as well, because today we've got director John Berman is going to be joining us live, talk about his new documentary, which I am fascinated by, Calling All Earthlings, uh, focuses on George Van Tassel, uh, a friend of Howard Hughes, aerospace engineer, uh, who became involved uh, in a believer early believer in UFOs and the UFO and really started the UFO cult phenomena in the California desert and one of the big things that Van Tassel was known for was the construction of the uh Integratron uh it's now in the National Register of Historic Places you can see it in Joshua Tree and we're going to talk about that with John Later in the show when he joins us, it is a it truly is a fascinating doc and it is available on VOD tomorrow, but we may have a surprise caller. Uh, Not sure because it's somebody who is always working and who may be working today. Uh, So we'll find out if we get our surprise caller guest guest star today. But in the interim. Todd Berger, screenwriter of Happy Time Murders, was going to join us today live. Unfortunately, Todd got a last-minute deal meeting with a network executive that is happening right this minute uh, somewhere in Los Angeles. So he is unable to join us live. But Todd and and I did a very lengthy, uh, in-depth interview on Happy Time Murders yesterday. Uh, You'll be hearing some of that later in the show. But first... We're going to talk about searching. I promised you searching. I promised the uh, producer, Timur Bekmambatov, that we'd be talking about searching on the show. We ran out of time last week. Searching is now in limited release in theaters. We'll be expanding. It is brilliant. Uh, co-written and directed by Anish Shiganti. Also co-written and produced by Sev Ohanian. This takes the what is known as screen life the screen language which teamer created a number of years ago with the first unfriended film after unfriended we had unfriended dark web uh written and directed by steven susco which took this screen life language to a new level now anish has taken it to a level that nobody ever envisioned or imagined it is an amazing film where all of these devices were utilizing every screen, screens through camera lenses, uh, iPhones, GoPros, uh, desktops, laptops. Everything is 
on a screen within a screen. Uh, and it's, it is the screen life or screen reality language uh, developed by Teamer. And what he has done over the years is he seeks out these young, hungry directors who have vision. And he lets them run with story and concept. And let me tell you, Anish and Sev ran with story with searching because this is the story of a father who is searching for his daughter. He thinks he knows her, but clearly, once you start digging online, all is not what it seems. Uh, This is an edge-of-your-seat thriller. It explodes with twists and turns and then elevated to the next level thanks to the integration of screen life. This is a true Hitchcockian thrill ride from beginning to end, very akin in story to the sensibility and tension and pacing of the man who knew too much. Um, absolutely fabulous stars, John Cho, Deborah Messing, the first such film using this screen life language to have major name bankable stars. Um, absolutely incredible. And you will be on the edge of your seat for the entire film. So I sat down with Teamer and all of our regular listeners know Teamer has been a guest many times on the show often calling late at night from Moscow while he's sitting at home editing something and drinking vodka. Um, But this time, Timur and I actually got to sit down in person uh, and had a wonderful time. But before we hear about Timur and my conversations and how he oversees and produces and develops screen life, we're going to hear from my, my conversation with Anish Shiganti. And let's take a listen to start with the overview and the story genesis for Searching. First thing I have to say to you, Anish, is Alfred Hitchcock would be proud. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. This is, from a storytelling standpoint, this is pure Alfred Hitchcock, the man who knew too much. Wow. You've got the cat and mouse. You've got the angst going on. You have a child that is in jeopardy. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you have this incredible score, Tobin's score. The torrent, torrent, yeah. Torrent yeah, yeah, yeah. that is just so Bernard Herman. Wow. It just makes my it, my heart soared. As you were saying this with right that. now. And then you punctuate that with just the tinkling ivories of Ode to Joy, which becomes Margot and Pamela's connective tissue. And every time you hear that faintness coming up, you know it's a happy moment or a memory that's, wow, that's happening. Wow, this is so awesome. Thank, what a way to start the day. It, I am so in love with this film. I oh my love, gosh, thank you very much. I mean, I've been on the Timur train for years since he started this whole screen life mm-hmm. ideology. Mm-hmm. I, I just He is such a visionary. He's, yeah, he's such an experimenter, which I love. He's so willing to take a risk. And he clearly gave you free reign and support yeah, here. Yeah. Because what you do... First, this story is fabulously designed and created with twists and turns that I, watching it last night, I heard people audibly gasping when certain things were happening. Awesome. The way you take your design where you take us through from the infancy of the internet 16 years ago when social media and things were just starting. And you see, you know, we see the original type slowly, slowly to come on screen. And you advance through the past 16 years of technological development until 
everything is opening up on the screen. And now you break down that fourth wall and you bring in surveillance cameras planted at home, street surveillance cameras, television cameras, streaming through a lens that is streaming onto a device. Yeah. And then we're framing it our own way, yeah. This is just... It's perfection. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I can't take all... I'm, I'm alone with you right now, but it was a, a group of five people. We made it together, and I'm, I'm, I'll let them know how, how much you like it. Let, let me start with the story, Anish. Yeah, yeah. Um, where did the idea for this story come from? Because you've got a twofold th- attraction here. You have parents who are going to want to see this. Mm-hmm. It's going to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. You may also give some of them ideas about how to spy on their children. Yeah. Um, it is going to mortify kids that, oh, my God, my parent might be able to check into all sure, of my stuff. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it shows the deep love of a parent mm-hmm. for a child yeah. and the links they will go to to protect them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you have that unique two-prong mm-hmm. system going on. So where did this come from? It's not, And especially with this format, it's not the kind of thing you think you'd sit down and Hey, we can do this in screen life, yeah. screen reality. Yeah, exactly. Um, first of all, wow, thank you very much. It's, I can't even respond individually. That's this is. We made this movie with five people in a tiny edit room, and never thought that anybody more than five other people would see this movie. So for us to, for anyone to be watching this movie, for there to be screenings that I'm not unaware of that are happening around the world, it's just like to have this response is just so overwhelming. Um, but uh, to answer the question, you know, this this whole project, and particularly the idea, came from honestly saying no to the opportunity a lot. Uh, uh, do you know anything about how we started off as a short film? Or yes. Anything? Okay, yeah. So, you know, when Seven and I met with this with Vazlev's, uh, Timor's company, they were interested in making a feature film that was comprised of a bunch of short films that took place on computer screens as a follow-up to Unfriended. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, originally, that was a lot more exciting uh, than a feature film because... And we're going to differ a little bit here on, uh, on, on, on how, how much we buy into screen life as a, as a sustainable format. But for me, watching those films, I saw not a lot of potential as like – like I, I saw like very cool movies but not a, not a, a whole potential of a subgenre. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw films that were like, okay, they did it once. That's done. It's done. But you can't, can't do it, it with everything. Sure. You yeah, clearly yeah. can't do it with everything. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be the exactly. right – story exactly. composition. Yeah. yeah. So basically we saw those films not knowing what our story would be. We were like, we can't, it, they did it already. We're done. Um, but a short film we thought would be kind of interesting. So we pitched them back originally uh, an eight and a half minute version of searching first. And mm-hmm. that idea started as the same seed of the idea. It was about a dad who breaks into his daughter's laptop to look for clues to find her. And the reason we kind of came up with that and the reason it became the story that it was, was we realized that in order for this movie to... Um, I think succeed. It needed to feel like, like what you're saying. The concept was informed by the uh, the conceit was informed by the story, as opposed mm-hmm. to the story being informed by the conceit. Right. You know. And for us, it, immediately we were like, if this movie is going to take place on screens, the screen that it is taking place on has to have information on it that is central to the plot. Therefore, a character should be entering this world of this screen looking for something. Mm-hmm. And a, a screen, a computer, is filled with lines of text, information, all these things. And no genre of movie deals with information better than a mystery. Because a mystery film, uh, a protagonist in your audience is always in search of information and right. are given pieces of information they're trying to piece together. So we figured, okay, it's about someone breaking into a computer and it's about the search for information. 
Um, and we, and, and Seb and myself, everything that we've ever done, whether it's a Google Glass commercial that got me hired at Google or it's searching or it's the things that we've written or it's our next project that we're shooting, which decidedly has no screens involved in it, um, <laughs> is always about parents and kids. And, and for us, uh, that's something that we kind of uh, – we both kind of have pretty strong relationship with our parents. And I think like it's something that feels very true to us and we wanted to – kind of incorporate that emotion um, into a story that was taking place on these cold, mundane devices. And we figured if we can marry that very, very, like, throbbing emotion and put it into these, like, cold, mundane devices, that marriage of very classic thriller and very mm-hmm. classic story with very unconventional uh, uh, means of telling that story would be a really magical mm-hmm. marriage. So that's sort of, like, how, what we were thinking always. It was just, like, marrying, making sure that the story and the characters... Uh, were not in service of the conceit, but rather the other way around. And by employing that very philosophy that Anish was just explaining, what has happened with this mystery thriller of searching, it's very akin to a book, to turning the pages of a book, of a great thriller. So I talked to him about that, the idea of book versus film and text, Where's the similarities and where are the differences here for the emotional uh, resonance? Yeah, we, we always knew, you know, before we made this film, it was just like, you know, I, I, we were like, are people going to say this is, the, this is one, of the cool fil- the, one of the coolest films they've ever seen or one of the coolest films they've ever read? You know, like we were like used to joke that like there's so much text on the sides of these film, on these frames. And at, at first it was such a daunting realization to make because – you know, when we're early in the stage of this two-year edit, which was a massive, complex process, um, you realize when you're pausing it, you're just like having these anxiety attacks because mm-hmm. you're realizing how much text there is to fill in this world. If you pause this movie, you can't just not have everything make sense. Every right. single line of text has to add to the story. Um, and, and every image that is behind that text. Exactly, yeah. So everything needs to piece together. And what ended up becoming a very daunting challenge is now one of the most exciting parts of the film is because there are so many storylines, clues, and like coloring to the world that is happening not where the main story is happening. It's next to if you. I mean, if you really wanted to piece the movie together, like you would not look at the main events. You would just kind of look at the sides, and you could kind of like have your own little kind of uh, mystery kind of developing. And developing is what happens, and techni- and this uh, so much of this comes from Anisha's technical proficiency and that of his editors, uh, Will Merrick and Nick Johnson. And I have to tell you, be on the lookout. Check out BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, sometime later this week, I did a very, very lengthy interview with Will and Nick specifically about the editing process on searching. And this is unlike anything. Filmmakers out there, you're going to be amazed by what they have to say about editing. But technically, there's layer upon layer of integrative sources, which is then punctuated with texting and messaging, use of a home computer. Um, Everything is for the taking. And everything is brought beautifully together in the editing process. Unfortunately, and I really hope the Academy when it comes awards time, that they take a good hard look at the work of Will and Nick with searching because they are masterful. Um, Their process is very akin to that with animation. And what they also do is, although it's minimal, they do help direct our focus to one of the many devices on screen uh, more or less subliminally. Uh, 
with just a tiny bit of cropping or bringing in, enhancing and enlarging one of the device screens within the big screen. Um, really, really amazing. And by their and through their work, we see that life goes beyond the four inch or the eight inch or the 17 inch screen in front of us and becomes the windows to the world outside. Um, absolutely incredible editing job. So take a listen to what Anish and I had to say about the editing in our conversation. Because of the very nature and structure of this screen life format and your design with this particular film, how did you work with your editors? And because you had to have been working on this all along. This is not the kind of film you get to the end and it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, we can put it together. No, you've got to be putting this along and I'm sure designing a lot of your shots as you're going. What was that like for you from a directorial standpoint? Because it's not what everybody thinks of as traditional directing. Oh, yeah. We, you know, we used to have a joke. A normal movie is pre-pro, pre-production, production, production, and post-production. And our movie was pre-post, post, post, and post-post. And, like, literally, like, the editing was such a all-consuming... Editing started seven weeks before we even shot a frame of the movie and concluded a year Mm -hmm. and a half after we finished our 13 days of shooting. So, like, we literally were always editing the film, and because what we're shooting is not the final image, it's just going inside of the final image, we always had to know what the final shots would look like even seven weeks before. So, and this was Seb Ahanian's idea, the co-writer and producer. He was like, why don't we just make the movie before we make the movie? So, seven weeks before we shot a frame, we brought Mm -hmm. in the editors, and they started screen capturing the internet and zooming in and creating basically what would become a rough animatic storyboard Mm -hmm. of the film. An hour and forty. Seven weeks later, we had an hour and forty minute cut starring me playing every single role, like the dad, the daughter, the brother, the mother, all of her friends. Oh, I, I want to see that cut. Yeah, um. they're, they're working on putting it on the Blu-ray, and I'm working on stopping them from doing that. So, uh, you know, it's it's it, we needed to understand how the two cameras play with each other: our final camera, and then the camera of the stuff that's in the world of the movie. And you need to know that early on, so. Because the decisions that you make on those 13 days of shooting, you're going to have to live with for the next year and a half. You know, John's eyeline, John Cho's operating the computer needs to perfectly match, you know, every cursor button, mm-hmm. everything like that. So we needed to know where every button was, where every window was going to pop up, where every uh, FaceTime thing was happening. So for us, it was a, a big, big matter of preparation. And even after we prepared it, we made an animated movie, then shot a live action movie, then put the live action movie inside of the animated movie, and then continued to refine that for a course of a year and a half. Like, even in that course of the year and a half, like, we were dealing, it was just five people in a tiny edit room with, on the corner of Melrose and La Brea with two iMac computers that you should be giving <laughs> someone to do their homework on not editing a movie with. And, like, it was like, you know, computers were crashing all the time. We'd lose 20% progress every two hours. You know, it was such a a test of technical complexity and also just morale uh, mm-hmm. because we were trying to make something that had no precedent. And when you have no precedent, it's very, you feel very awesome about the potential of a project, but at the same time, you have no idea of what, how long anything's going to take, what anything's going to happen or whether or not anyone's going to see this at all. So kind of like to marry those two kind of ridiculous mental and physical challenges um, for the course of two years was an incredibly complex process. And, I can't take credit for the editor's work. It's Will Merrick and Nick Johnson. And when this movie comes out, I'm going to like be yelling their names because they deserve every accolade that I, I hope that they're going to get. Um, but it's really them who kind of put the who commandeered the ship for a lot of it. 
and commandeered they did indeed. And again, I can't encourage you enough. Later in the week, you know, check out BehindTheLensOnline.net. I will have the full interview up there with Will and Nick. And for a lot of you, uh, they did use, for the filmmakers, the editors out there who are listening to the show, they did use the Adobe Premiere Pro. Uh, the Adobe After Effects, Adobe Illustrator, and really married everything together. Uh, and they go into great length, and we talk about that a lot, about how all of that influenced the end result and the look of searching. But you guys know me, and an interview with me or a conversation with me wouldn't be complete without my asking the filmmaker or the actors or the writers what their takeaway was, um, what they personally took away from the project. And that's exactly what I asked Anish. What did you, as a filmmaker, what did you personally take away from making searching that you will now take forward into future projects? Um, I think uh, two things. Um, number one, uh, three things. Number one is uh, uh, the, the amount of preparation that I think we did was obviously exceptionally high on, on mm-hmm. this film because we needed to prepare that much. But in a lot of ways, kind of having a version of the movie before we even shot the movie taught us a lot of things that worked and didn't work. And I think moving forward, just even storyboarding or animatic animaticing a movie, uh, an idea of it can teach you things that don't work before you kind of get into that mistake and kind of help you avoid some problems. Um, two, I think one of the ways we made this film, uh, you know, every cut of it, and this was again, Seb kind of leading this, but like we would always, every cut, once we finished it, lock 12 of our closest collab, I mean, people we trusted in a room, lock the door, screen the movie for them and ask them 200 questions about every single minute of the movie. And we'd come out with reams of data uh, mm-hmm. about the film, about which moments weren't working and what our intention was, but what wasn't or what was coming out. And we would take all that data, go back to the edit and re-edit the film or like a touch up all these things, ask the same questions to another batch of people and fix the movie as it got closer. And I think that idea of testing a, a, a film made it its best possible version at the end. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really want to keep doing uh, moving forward. And then finally to kind of, I, uh, there's a level of self-consciousness that I think um, I can have been able to temper. You know, I think this is my first movie, you know, on set. I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering just as much how to make this movie right as I am like, making sure that people don't think I'm stupid or I'm saying the wrong thing because every time I walked up to John and Deborah who are like real movie stars I'm like what are they thinking about me like did I just say something wrong like oh my god they know I'm a flake or something like that so to kind of temper that I, and, and understand that uh, everyone works differently and, and we're all kind of doing this together is something that I'll hopefully bring on to the next one and I can't wait to see what Anish brings to the next one and how soon we'll get to see the next work from him but you know the man behind Screen Life, the man who conceived this and who, frost, and who started bringing it to the forefront, Timur Bekmambetov. Um, the last time Timur and I actually got to sit down in person was years ago for his film Wanted. Yeah, that's going back a few years. And everything that we have done since then has been on the phone. Uh, either he's calling me, I'm calling him, he's calling in here to the show, he's calling from Italy while, while he's on location, calling from Moscow. Uh, we never get to do a face-to-face. We finally got to this time. And, of course, Timur had to joke about it as we talked about how screen life came to be and what prompted him to develop this film, this new film language. 
Everything we've done has been on the phone or calling live to the radio. You see, you see, it's, it's now you have an answer why why I produced the directed screen live movies. That's right, just for people like you and me. Yes, because <laughs> we understand it. I mean, Timur, I have been on this screen life ride with you since it started, since it was in production phases of Unfriended. This is blowing my mind. I see Dark Web 10 days ago. Incredible. Steven Susco, you were a god to him, let me tell yeah, you. Yeah. Then I see this last night. This is This is brilliant. The editing on this, and unfortunately, I, I don't think the Academy will look at this in the proper scheme. The editing is Oscar-worthy, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. editing that goes into this. Because editing is a storytelling, in this case, more than any, any, anywhere. I mean, this blew my mind, and the fact that here you are, you're mentoring these filmmakers like Anish, like Steven, like Nelson, and you're really bringing them into the craft of filmmaking that's 100 years old, mm -hmm. but with this new spin. Yes, yes, you... <laughs> I, I don't know what to, what to add, <laughs> because you said everything that should be written. Uh, no, no, I, I, I... Yes, I know two things. First of all, the, the, uh, the screen life, it's only way to tell stories about today's world and today's characters, because it's how we live today, and it's a, it's a space where we make it's a space where we make our decisions. We 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 can we find new new friends. We're losing friends. We're betraying. We're cheating. We're we are protecting. We are making moral choices. What's which is important for storytelling, and it's happening today on screen, mm -hmm. uh, mostly like four four hours a day, probably minimum for yeah. for, for for us and for teenagers even more. And 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 uh, and there is no way to tell stories about today's characters without showing this, their screens. Otherwise, you will miss like what can how can tell a story about father looking for his daughter. You can't without it. And I am constantly looking for this kind of stories mm -hmm. uh, uh, and trying to uh, find the right filmmakers who can uh, uh, execute and tell the stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what I learned that this they does I learned that there is a one. Thing Theme connects all this all these projects. It's a fear of internet, a fear of this digital world, because we uh, because we live in this world only ten years as a, as, a, as, a, as a civilization, and uh, and in the physical world we spend thousands of thousands of years to create to tell stories to to understand and adapt you know adapt this reality for our our mental our, mm -hmm. our, our mind. And like we, like ancient Greeks, they said, "Oh, the lightning is the Zeus send the whatever, you know." Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and 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 then there's like some bushmans in Africa. They're saying the moon. It's my grandfather ate watermelon and just throw it, throw it away. Yeah. And it's a moon, moon. They created narratives mm -hmm. to explain the reality, to adapt, to adapt, to con connect to the reality, and to live in the world they can understand. But if you don't understand, then you scared right. and we, I, what I understand what I understand that we live in this new uh, uh, made by our hands our minds mm -hmm. in this world without understanding we live in fear mm -hmm. we live in fear there's a it's very dark it's al almost like al al only instincts mm 
mm-hmm. mostly, sort of not only, mostly instincts. Yeah. And uh, and and we have a mission, filmmakers, storytellers, writers. We have a, we have a kind of like a mission to tell stories to to to, to help our uh, societies to to uh, to uh, to identify who we are, how we live, what's moral choice. Like for example, what's moral stakes and uh, norms in internet, which mm-hmm. are very different from uh, from from yeah. reality. For example, like what does it mean family internet? Like if you if you if you and your wife and, and husband and wife they're not sharing I- accounts with each other. They, mm-hmm. they have separate accounts, right. separate emails, separate. In the physical world, we share. We have the same, the same uh, post box, right. yeah, and we have the same tables, the same everything. But in internet, we have different, mm-hmm. and we have separate, and uh, and we and it's it means the family doesn't exist in internet. People live together in physical world, but live separate life. Mm-hmm. Lives in the internet, and it should be somehow recognized, understood, and, and fixed, or accepted, or changed, or and the same as with the death. We don't know what does it mean death in internet because uh, 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 I'm getting every year happy birthday messages from my friend who died a few years ago because he forgot to uh, to un- unbutton whatever. Yeah, because because for example, in physical world, we invented civilization, invented funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because we need to see that this person is dead, yeah. and, and then live without him. And it's just it's it's very painful. But it's the only way how we all together can be written, witness yeah. that it's happened and live without the person. And and then only the ghost stories can bother us. But <clears throat> in, in, in internet we don't have it. And 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 computer built uh, 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 computer with this artificial intellect or like Google whatever they think that this person is still alive and keep sending messages and keep counting him and just you know it, there is a lot of problems I don't want even to go deep deep you know because yeah. it's not about it's not and it's not about uh, uh, in, in intellectual uh, uh, analysis and, and researchers and social social sociological sociological thing it's about storytelling yeah. because the only way how we can all uh, 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 create the new trust, the, the, you know, the new rules, new trust uh, of internet. When we will tell stories, when we will tell emotional stories, and audience will laugh and cry or jump, <laughs> listening to the stories, and then they will, we all together will will accept something. You know, will, mm-hmm. will oh, create, yeah. create the new trust, and this is what we what we are doing, and is we are lucky. We're lucky, and we kind of feel, all feel that uh, uh, we have unique possibility as, as storytellers mm-hmm. to deal with a new language. And that was Timur Bekmambatov talking about storytelling, the need for screen life to tell stories for today's society. We'll come back to some more of Timur in a little bit, but right now, we're going to welcome the wonderful John Berman, who seems to be calling all Earthlings. Hi, John. Oh, hello. How are you? Well, I am very excited to be talking to you. This is, I mean, I was just enthralled with this documentary. Ab- oh, you're too kind. Absolutely enthralled. Um, 
I knew nothing about uh, George Van Tassel, which was your jumping off point into telling this story about the UFO cults, Van Tassel, his work, how that has transpired and grown over the years, all sitting down there and in our little California desert. It's a wild story, and, and it resonates way beyond uh, George and his incredible activities in my book. I'll tell you. You know, how this is definitely not the kind of thing that you're sitting there and you're bandying about, you know, hmm, what do I make a film on? What do I make a documentary on? What kind of story? Where did the idea for Calling All Earthlings arise for you? Did you have your own alien encounter that said, Make this movie. Yes. No, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was, you know, actually growing up, uh, I was always interested in the alternative and did feel like that my family had come from another planet. You know, you could say alienation, <laughs> like alienation. Um, I don't know. Maybe we did come from another planet. I'll Maybe. Have to ask, I'll have to check the family record. But, um, I, I was always interested in the counterculture, Grateful Dead fan, Abby Hoffman, Groucho Marx, Bugs Bunny. These are my heroes. Uh, anyway, uh, a few years back, I was wandering by the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles, and uh, I happened upon this book that discussed and had beautiful pictures of spiritual landscapes in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I saw this picture of the dome, and it it was this gothic, white planetarium, weird-looking, you know, Ray Harryhausen dome in the middle of the desert, and there was a sign perched on it that said, uh, for basic experiments in life extension. And I was like, I have to go there. <laughs> that, that's where the journey started. Wow. Now, how, when did you start learning about George Van Tassel? And, you know, I mean, here is a man, he was a friend of, of Howard Hughes, of aeros, uh, aerospace engineer, and just walks away from it all and goes to the desert. Yeah, I, I you know, as, as I got into the physical space of the dome and, of course, Giant Rock, which is nearby, I became more and more intrigued and... Um, and follow the story. And as a filmmaker, what I loved about it was that you would hear six versions of every beat of the story. <laughs> so I love the Rashomon effect of it. You know, there's not a lot of photos or um, film of George Van Tassel. So mm-hmm. uh, we kind of had to reconstruct it. And uh, every time you make a film, it's like uh, you're summoning up magic. Hopefully not the Aleister Crowley magic, but uh, <laughs> uh, you're summoning up some kind of magic and uh, we we found people who are connected in some way to the Integratron, including the uh, current keepers of the dome, and including uh, character actor uh, Ted Markland, who was the first person to bring Peter Fonda to the desert, and said, "Hey, we should make some movies out here and, and do peyote with uh, the Indian." So uh, we ran into a lot of great people, and the question was, would it all hang together as a story? Now, the film, which is coming out on uh, iTunes uh, tomorrow, I think you can pre-buy it today, mm-hmm. and other uh, fine video-on-demand uh, um, uh, places, including, you know, Amazon Instant and all that. Um, you know, at the end of the film, 
people will see what we uh, produce. I mean, it's not it's not a Stephen Greer little tiny skeletal alien, but I mean, this is number one. Your production values in Calling All Earthlings phenomenal. You you know you mention and you talk about you know the spiritual landscape of the California desert. Your ca- the camera work, the cinematography is exquisite. You capture some of the most beautiful visuals that anybody will ever see on screen. And all of this is sitting right there next to 29 Palms. And the rock formations, absolutely stunning. And then your imagery of Thank you. the imagery of the Integraton itself is gorgeous. So I'm curious, you know, what came first? The story, the imagery, were you capturing imagery and then getting the backstories to things? What was that process like? Because this is not a traditional thematically thematic narrative that you would sit down and just write out. I mean, this is this is going to happen either visually or through all of the stories, the six ways till Sunday that everybody is telling you for you to then weed through. Um, you know, it started it started with seeing this image and my my legacy of of always being interested in the underrepresented and the counterculture and all that. But just like this is so cool, and um, so I would say it started with the imagery, and then the then the ideas of George Van Tassel. If if your listeners don't know about George and his dome, he had designed it as this machine that would uh, extend your life possibly into the hundreds of years as well as be a time machine. So, uh, you know, sometimes I felt like George in making the movie, like, are we going to be able to push this boulder up the hill? Do we really have something here? And, yeah, the, the, uh, you know, I could thank uh, Tony Molina, who's an amazing uh, director of photography, and he's been very supportive of the project, and Greg Wilson. They both, um, you know, came up with these beautiful images of this beguiling machine. I mean, just stunning. And the information that you impart, I mean, there are custodians of the Integraton. There are presentations that are given. And the information, very informative. I mean, no screws, nothing metallic holding this thing together, um, which I felt was just amazed to learn. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up, and I, it seemed like a like kind of weird footnote. However, that was a trope in the mid-century uh, UFO world, that the uh, aliens, or extraterrestrials, as you would ha- call them, didn't want any metal around um, any of their uh, meeting points and uh, devices. Uh, in the case of the Integratron, it had a more practical purpose if it would... Um, been around as it was supposed to this domed giant machine uh the metal could heat up and burn the whole place down mm-hmm. so um i uh, mean there's 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 a lot there uh and the, the uh the the way those beautiful uh pieces of wood are bent and uh constructed uh glunom it's called and this was the same principles that mr howard robard used used on his spruce goose, and as well as some experimental aircraft that George may have worked on at the Harper Dry Lake uh, test site that you had out in the desert. Mm-hmm. You know, some people will say that that's why 
uh, George Van Tassel went out there to, to work with Hughes on at the Harper Dry Lake. And of course, I would not be surprised by that at all, um, considering you know what we know about Howard Hughes and what we are discovering through your documentary about George Van Tassel. Um, you know, and I think that's, and because of the spruce goose, the similarities with the construction in the spruce goose and the Integratron, um, it makes a lot of sense when you, you know, put the pieces together. Uh, and that's something that I really love because it's, it's, we're putting puzzle pieces together also with this documentary. Um, I think that's part of the thrill that everybody had watching the X-Files. It's putting puzzle pieces together. Oh, yeah. Putting and you know, anyone who's ever watched an episode of the X Files should rush out to iTunes right now and get a copy of the film because, yeah, you're right. It's like there's a participatory aspect, hopefully, to uh, the story and the film in that you're uncovering the clues with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And you got to do after you watch the film, my, my hope is that you have a lot of questions. Well, and I, I love the curious people. I mean, that's as as I'm watching the as I'm watching the documentary, and I've watched it twice now, uh, yeah, because it, I, there's just more and more and more, and then the mind starts reeling. Well, what about this? What about this? I wonder if this adds up to this. It really does. It makes you think, and it's so enjoyable and entertaining because we are all fascinated by, and always have been, like ever since Melies and you know, the the rocket into the moon. Um, we've always been fascinated with extraterrestrial life. The uh, You know, you mentioned Bugs Bunny. I mean, come on, one of our favorite cartoon characters, Mar- <laughs> Marvin the Martian. Uh, so, Absolutely. you know, this is something that is inherent. Um, I think it's... I now, think- is he the one who said... He's the one who said, my, my new X-13 rocket will destroy the world. That's... Okay. that's it now you have a lot of interviews in within this documentary john so i'm curious and some of these people are absolutely fascinating and they're from different you know different perspectives we have scientific perspectives we have spiritual perspectives how did you go about finding each of these individuals and then developing, you know, your through line, integrating their interviews with their specific subject areas. Well, it's interesting. At first, at first we had it set up as like a, my journey. And I've come to realize that there should be a ban on filmmakers making films where they're in it, unless there's a really darn good reason. Um even Icarus, that very interesting film about doping, mm-hmm. uh, the filmmaker starts off in it, and then he kind of dropped out. So um, we had the elements of what the story we wanted to tell in place. We just had to cut. I had to cut myself out of the film. It's a very weird case where the director has to uh, cut the uh, main actor himself out of the film because that wasn't working. So we knew what we wanted to say, and then it was a question of combing through our couple of hundred hours worth of interviews, uh, wow. of which there's extras on the DVD, uh, um, coming through that and finding material that, that resonated on the same frequency that told the same story. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, where did your story actually take place? 
Was it in the editing room or did you see it, your through line unfolding as you were amassing these hundreds of hours of interviews? I would say both. You know, I spent a few years editing the film myself, which is a very instructive process if you have the time for a filmmaker to do. Document In documentaries, we do the writing mostly in the edit room. So mm-hmm. I had an idea of where I wanted it to go, and then I was lucky enough to uh, collaborate with Ian Kennedy, a very nice, taciturn British producer and editor. And uh, Ian uh, and I, uh, you know, since I knew the footage so well, I was able to say, oh, okay, let's grab that and put that here. And then Ian found some cool stuff. And, yeah, because the idea is that really my films are a lot often about communities. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of uh, about a, a community uh, not everyone is so directly connected to George Van Tassel, but if you look at it like George as the father of the Aquarian age, uh, you could say that a good uh, half of Joshua Tree area is descendants of George. And some, I mean, most people know the story. And in fact, we're doing a screening and it looks like it's going to sell out. We're doing a screening in uh, Joshua Tree uh, in, uh, on the 7th. Wow. So, um, so it's exciting to return to the scene of the, uh, well, not of the crime, of the, uh, <laughs> of the invention or <laughs> the scene of the download from uh, the Venetians well, of Gonda. Well, right? you know, there could and, have you been. Know, for people who don't know this, yeah. I was going to say. There, I don't know if everyone knows this story. There could have been a crime there. There could have been a crime, John, considering well, there that. Is, there's that, some hints at that. Yes. All of Van Tassel's work on his death. Number one, he dies mysteriously, but then all of his work mysteriously disappeared so by the way there is no better way to die than mysteriously i have to say well but, that's um, because you know people will be talking about you forever that's true and um you know we have we present a number of different uh um explanations you remember when when dvds first came out and we were going to be able to choose the ending yep. nobody wanted to do that like you could click this button, then you get this different ending. You almost could, you could you do this linear, linearly by watching this movie because there's a lot of different reasons. Listen, somebody who's gathering a very radical, in a peace and love way, people in the desert in the mid-50s, that alone was a big problem for the authorities. And if he's going to be running uh, 50,000 volts of power, and coursing that through the veins of the Southern California grid and blowing it out, and possibly, you know, uncovering some kind of scheme for free energy. Uh, yeah, it's possible there are people like the classic um, uh, Tesla versus Edison, mm-hmm. people who don't want uh, free energy because they're making a buck off of it. I don't know how much money these people need, by the way. <laughs> but, That's true. But, uh Anything, anything is possible. I'm not a huge conspiracy fan. I do believe that there are forces that, for whatever reason, want to keep things secret, shrouded, hidden, whatever you want to call it. So it's possible that George did meet an untimely death uh, through uh, nefarious means, or it's also possible that he ate too much fast food and had a heart attack. Because remember, Southern California is not the, uh, the place of the Source family's restaurant. I mean, it was. But it was really the place of roads and little towns and mm-hmm. hard scrabble living and grabbing a bite on the road and you're not making it in Whittier and you gotta you gotta move out back to Oklahoma. You know, it's a it's a crazy I love the story of California 
Um, it's so different from the coastal port city of New York. You mm-hmm. know? Very much so. You know, two of the interview subjects that I, I was particularly enamored with was Van Tassel's son and grandson. You know, yes. that, yeah. that to get, you know, family recollection is always, that always adds a perspective that it can be coming from an, it typically will come from an emotional standpoint. Um, which really humanizes and sheds a, a totally different light on the subject. I mean, a lot of people may think that Van Tassel was just was nutty, um, but when you hear that's distinctly impossible. But so is Tesla. That's true, and we uh, we all now have seen Tesla, where, where that's going. Um, Tesla gave us some. They gave us our modern infrastructure. Yes, indeed. You know, are there? So, I mean, just to be clear. Um, uh, Matt and uh, Matt and Daniel Boone. Daniel is George's son-in-law. He went out because Yogananda, Yogananda of the Self-Realization Fellowships, the, one of the first gurus to come to the, the States, uh, Yogananda told uh, Daniel and Norman Paulson to go and see the man in the desert. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, Daniel Boone uh, moved out to the desert, drove out there found George Van Tassel, and married his daughter. And Norman married the other daughter. Mm-hmm. One of, the, one of his other daughters. So Daniel's the son-in-law. And, uh, and yeah, they have an, emo- an emotional and spiritual and technical connection because they helped build the dome. Daniel has since passed. And for Matt, I think it's like this is a conversation that he's lived with for so long, and he's moving to another chapter in his life. Really great, great guys. Mm-hmm. Really loved hanging out with them. Did and out of all of your interview subjects, was there anybody who was? Did you encounter any reticence uh, among anybody about unwillingness to go on camera, or to talk about, you know, any one of the myriad of subject areas that you touch on? Well, yes. I mean, there was definitely a reticence. It was almost like I felt like at the beginning when I first moved out there. I mean, remember, I was a city slicker. I had my uh, used BMW convertible, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which is not, by the way, a great car to drive around the desert floor. Uh, no. Um, uh, and, uh, and we did. I wound up tearing pieces off the car with my uh, camera guy, Greg. I was like, oh, I guess we don't need this piece. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was like hot fuzz in that people were like, oh, you, you got to talk to Charlotte. Charlotte is a local, um, talented channeler, you could say. I, mm-hmm. I think that's what she said, calls herself. And, yeah. uh, she, uh, is a healer and channeler and they're like, talk to Charlotte and then we'll talk to you. If she approves the project, then you could go forward. Wow. So it was like the town was a secret, uh, uh, theme, you know? Wow. Was there anything that really struck you in the process of making this documentary that really made you sit up and go, oh, my God, and really had you wondering about something or was it a huge surprise to you? Uh, there's some stuff that came up. Yeah. And uh, well, there's one thing I have this report that somebody wrote. They're turning the Integratron into a uh, historical site. And if any of your listeners want that, they could just go on our website calling all earthlings movie.com and uh, shoot us an email and we'll send it out to you get on our mailing list but um the other thing uh, that kind of shocked me was the planning 
you know, when you make a documentary, like I said, you're doing the writing. So I read a lot of different materials and a lot of the planning that the government of the United States was up to. And understandably, in a way, because of the Cold War and the shadow of the Cold War mm-hmm. and Operation Paperclip and all this wild stuff, like we, we've beaten the Nazis and now we've got to beat the Russians. <laughs> and, uh, and out of that, there was some very interesting planning happening that I'm going to talk about in my next project. Oh, so there's more to come. There is more. Son of calling all earthlings. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a totally, totally different style project, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so, I mean, the one-off documentary thing is fantastic, and, and I hope everyone sees it, and I hope they stay tuned for the, for the coming, uh, you know, maybe series and things like that, because there's a lot to tell. You can't always condense it down into a... 90 minutes and theaters don't like three and a half hour movies. So we'll have to do a series. You know, um, you know, how, when did you actually do the filming? How long was this process for you from beginning to end? The process was about seven years. That's the same amount of time it takes to regenerate your cells. Uh, and I hope I'm going to regenerate soon. Um, (laughs) but, um, the, uh, process i lived i was kind of embedded right embedded in joshua tree mm-hmm. i uh, have a, my other life sometimes i feel like uh, indiana jones like i throw off my professorial uh, uh tweeds and 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 i ran out to the desert and uh lived there for about four months and came back and uh at some points i thought i might just stay out there in the magical world out there because the people are so great um and uh you know, uh, so the whole process was seven years, uh, you know, in between classes and editing and getting to know the 120 hours of footage and reading over 200 books and articles and, uh, you know, combing through archival footage that might creatively illustrate or refute what was being said on screen. You know, mm-hmm. these are all factors that came into play. Did you encounter any kind of any logistical issues because 29 Palms is right there and abuts this property? Um, did uh, did the government come into play at all with uh, requiring permissions or anything like that? No, no, we <laughs> as a comment, uh, we didn't um, have any issues with the military uh, uh, out there. They have their own scene going, even though it's uh weirdly close to the dome, mm-hmm. the 29 Palms uh, uh, base, or uh, um, what is it called? Uh, it has a full name, but yeah, you know what we're talking the com- about. The combat and, uh, testing area, They're doing yeah. their things, and, and the hippies are doing their things, and the other counterculture people, and uh, some would say that's like a balance. I did call uh, um, and uh, try to get an interview with someone from the military, but was rebuffed on that, so... There you go. Uh, but we didn't have any. No, no men in black came to our shoot. Oh, well, I, I bet that would have been fun, though. <laughs> well, they might class it up, you know, they have those nice outfits. <laughs> but, um, but it's, you know, listen, as Eric Burden, the, uh, talk about, you know, a thrill meeting one of my rock and roll legends. As Eric Burden says in the film, you know, some secrets that maybe we're not supposed to know. He's like in Britain, if you show up at a sec- near a, right near a secret Air Force base and you go to the local pub in the town, they're going to get on the phone and they're going uh, to call, uh, you know, the secret uh, people and say, mm-hmm. hey, we got a stranger here, you know. Yeah. So 
maybe there's some stuff we're not supposed to know. I don't know. As Americans, we feel it's our birthright to know everything. Well, I know now that I, I have... I don't know what that is. <laughs> now that I have seen Calling Our Earthlings, I want to see more. Because it is so fascinating. Your story structure, uh, it just opens your eyes and it opens the mind and really makes you think and ask even more questions. So I want to see you continue this and do a series or something and expand even more on just this, you know, this tip of the iceberg that you've exposed us to with Calling All Earthlings. Well, I'd love to do more. I'm fascinated uh, with obsessed people, and I get obsessed with obsessed people. I felt a little like Richard Dreyfuss when he was building in the Close Encounters, the, uh, the what is it, the towers, the devil's mm-hmm. towers out of uh, what, clay or mud or something. Yeah. So I, I became increasingly obsessed by this, this whole story, and that obsession will continue in new and expanded forms, uh, be it with aliens or like my last film. This is kind of a companion piece to Commune, my last film, which uh, – dealt with uh, uh, one of the original communes, Black Bear Ranch. The kind of experiments in reality. And uh, some of these experiments have to do with group uh, think and, and have to do with the courage and foolhardiness, whatever you want to call it, both uh, uh, and, uh, you know, justice of uh, creating a new world. And in the 1950s, that new world was the hope of the uh, atomic, uh, well, the fear of the atomic uh, uh, mm-hmm. weapons which is apparently uh, uh, one of the reasons why uh, uh, extraterrestrial life forms may have come down. And then the hope and the, and the power and the promise of our, our grappling with technology, like Formica and uh, TV. And, you know, it was an exciting, heady time. Mm-hmm. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for joining me live on Behind the Lens today. This is just fabulous, and I can't, I mean, everybody. Thank you. On VOD, on iTunes, on all of your digital platforms tomorrow, Calling All Earthlings, it, and it's a be- It's beautiful to look at to boot. Uh, you know, some of your time Thank t- you. Some we of your, a, your time we lapse. We have a secret screening on this Thursday as well. A secret screening, huh? In, Ma- in Malibu, and yeah, if they get on our mailing list and email us, we'll, we'll give them the info. It's an incredible space. Well, all anyone has to do is go to callingallearthlingsmovie.com, and they can get all right. the information that they need and get on your mailing list and find out. You've got a lot of really cool links and things on the site, too. i got to say, I was playing on yeah. there. So I, I really... Thank you. Uh, we're trying to give stuff away in, in the spirit of, you know, the Grateful Dead who gave their concerts away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were allowed to tape them. So if you go to the tab that says Conspirators, uh, there's all kinds of great info. And some of the people who we have in the film, their websites and information. Well, John, thank you again. And I hope that when you, when you further this project or work on others, I hope you'll come back on the show. I love talking to you. Oh, I loved it, too. Thank you so much, Abby. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. And that was John Berman, director and writer of Calling All Earthlings, available tomorrow, VOD, VOD, digital platforms, and all that cool stuff. So, Pam, should we run another half hour so we can do happy time murders today? 
All right. Only the third time in our history we are going to add another half hour to the show today. But first, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to hear more from Timur Bekmanbetov talking about screen life language and producing screen life language films. And then we're going to dig deep and uh, talk about some fabulous felt in Happy Time Murders. And I know I'm in the minority, people. I know. We'll be right back. Okay, kids, the campfire's out. Let's hit the road. Uh, Dad, the fire's not out. It's still smoking. No, uh, close enough. Come on, Dad, do your homework. If it's too hot to touch, then it's too hot to leave. I knew that. You're never too young to get your smoky on. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. And welcome back to the expanded edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe 24-7 and always on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, And... We're run, We're going to run an extra 30 minutes today because we've got so much uh, to talk about with so many great films and great interviews. And I really want you to get a really good sense of a lot of these filmmakers that are out there. Um, before we went to break and earlier in the show, before John Berman, we were talking about Searching, uh, co-written and directed by Anish Shiganti, producer Timur Bekmanbetov, and... We're going to hear some more from Timur, who actually has been mentoring young filmmakers in this new screen life language, which he created a number of years ago with the film. We first saw it uh, in Unfriended, most recently this summer, Unfriended Dark Web, which elevated it and now Searching, which just takes it to an entirely new level. Um, But what Timur has done is actually in order to have this whole group of of hungry young filmmakers who are visionaries and who can think outside the box contest contest for the, for filmmakers is what uh, he and his company did. And they would submit things and then they would go through and actually they had uh, over 200 people submitted their projects. They picked seven teamer and his team picked 17, 17 filmmakers uh, so there'll be 17 new films with this screen life language, Searching being one of them. And I think Unfriended Dark Web was also one. But, you know, this requires overseeing. 
and what do, and you know what how does he interact with these young filmmakers as the executive producer or the boots on the ground producer working with uh the young film these new filmmakers uh so let's take another listen to what Timur had to say about producing screen life language films well, and this language that we now see with searching, I'm curious how much involvement you have as a producer. I know you were EP on Dark Web. So I'm curious your involvement into the story, the two different aspects, the technological storytelling aspect and then the story as a whole. Because i got to tell you, Tamer, this one on both levels goes above and beyond. I felt like I was watching a Hitchcock thriller. The man who knew too much. Yeah, yeah. The score, it's like Bernard Herman is filling it up, but then the beautiful Ode to Joy being played in between. Yeah. As Margot and Pamela's theme, more or less. But then you look at the technical aspects. So I'm curious, because you have these new young youngsters no, doing no, no. this filmmaking. No, no, no. First of all, uh, because I'm a filmmaker myself, and I produced, directed the movie at the same time they, they made. Right. And uh, and for me, uh, it was and I suffered enough from uh, 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 being tortured by studio system when people knows more than you, they think they know more than you what to do. And my 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 uh, uh, theory, my uh, processes as a producer is to find the right person and to support this person to to express himself and to create the. Uh, to create the uh, conditions for for these pe- people to to be, and because it, anything, whatever you do, whatever you want to say to them, you should make you, them feel that they they did it themselves. Mm-hmm. This is what I what's my understanding. It's what what I would I would like to have, uh, and and uh, as a as a director, and and for example, the notes. There was some notes we, we, I sent, maybe, but mostly the, 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 with the system we, uh, we we picked was to have screenings, mm-hmm. and they had uh, like seven and eight screenings. I don't know how many, but more, a lot, seven screenings, uh, not not huge test screenings with uh, two hundred people, but screenings. And the screen and the, all the notes they got from the screenings because audience told them, mm-hmm. and uh, we were just uh, interpreting these notes the audience and just saying oh maybe they mean that it's it's it was uh, important for me that they uh, they uh, it's a niche it's him it's him it's mm-hmm. not somebody else and we from the beginning we had it by the way we had a interesting uh, conflict uh, aesthetical because uh, what he said to me a niche from the beginning that he wants to make that he loves unfriended but he wants to make it different I said what uh, because an unfriended, and it was in my mind, is what I believe in, is these this screen life movies are, has unbelievable possibility to be real-time, um, real-time, non-edited right. uh, media. You know? And he said, no, I want to make it, uh, and he said, I want to make it different, not what you did before. I want to make it uh, more cinematic, more like, with editing, with a soundtrack, etc. I said, great, when you will, let's call it New Testament. <laughs> you will make, and and he and he and he proved that it's 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 a, it was very very his way. I don't know which one is better. It does not matter. But what was important for me uh, and uh, that to create an, a case that every filmmaker can 
find he can make screen life movie and make it his own. His own. Mm-hmm. This was more important for me than just to say no, no, no. I'm right mm-hmm. because now I'm now I know there's another. 10, 15 filmmakers will will show up and will say, "Hey, I want to make it too," because I know that it's a, it's not a it's not a dogma. Mm. It's a it's a it's just a new reality, and we can make our own movies. And we have we have like eight new filmmakers. We have a contest, and there were the 200 people submitted their their projects, and we picked 17, and will be 17 new movies. Yeah, I've been following, you know, the contest thing on the website, you know, submit your, yeah. uh, you know, and I think that's a brilliant way because it gives you a sense of their voice, yes. but also their capability. Yes, of course, and and, and it's uh, it's very important that Anish spent spent years to, to, to work for Google and, and he, he, know, he knows the audience. Yeah, you know, and it's great. It's what's what's. It's a, one of the reasons why this movie has a such a uh, unique uh, uh, style and mm-hmm. uh, and and unique but relatable mm-hmm. because people learn this language for many years uh, watching commercials, Google commercials, and uh, and and I, and for now, my plan and I, I my plan for 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 now is to use these movies as a as a, a cases. To uh, uh, seduce filmmakers, uh, and not only young filmmakers, but I believe now the next step it's uh, established filmmakers and, and, and actors to to uh, to make screen life movies, because now there's no fear. Okay, this is you see how great it could be, and yeah. uh, and it was important, and uh, and and, uh, and and what's important for me now is to be to show that this screen life it's not a genre, it's language. Yes, and it could be different genres. So we have a lot more to look forward to with screen life, uh, and what's to come with these innovative filmmakers that are being shepherded by Teamer and his team, but. I can't encourage you highly enough that searching is in theaters now. It's expanding. See it. See it on the big screen. You will be blown away. And it truly is uh, a Hitchcockian thriller at its optimum. There's another documentary I want to mention that's out right now called Davi's Way. Uh, Robert Davi, many of you, you know him as as the heavy is the heavy in and the villain in James Bond films. You know him as Special Agent Johnson in Die Hard. Um, you've seen him in Kill the Irishman, in The Iceman. Um, so many, you know, mob-type pictures. He always plays the role of the heavy. But what a lot of you don't know, for some of you, you may think back in Goonies, uh, one of his first big screen appearances, he was an opera-singing bad guy. Well, that was not dubbed. Robert Davi truly is opera trained. He is a classically trained singer, and singing is his first love and passion. And with Davi, he's also a Frank Sinatra devotee. So when it was time for, he wanted to do something to celebrate Sinatra's 100th birthday a couple of years ago. He, wanted, he had a vision to recreate Sinatra's main event that had been at Madison Square Gardens back in 1974, I believe. And the documentary goes on this journey of him trying to put together this 100th anniversary tribute to Sinatra. 
And he, of course, would be headlining. And if you haven't heard him sing Sinatra, oh, my God, you are in for a treat. He does have a CD out. Um, Get it. Listen. You'll love it. But what is most interesting about this documentary is instead of really focusing on the journey of making, of putting together this tribute uh, event for Sinatra, this is really the journey of Robert Davi, and he delves, he exposes himself, warts and all, good, bad. Uh, you really get to see and understand his passion for music, uh, his love of family. You see him and his one daughter uh, actually sing. Of course, one of my favorite parts is his daughter wants dad to help her in the in the industry, and he goes, "No, nobody helped me. Figure it out on your for yourself." speech I got very similarly from my own father uh, 40 over 40 years ago. But watching what you really see is the journey of Robert Davi. And you really get to understand this man, his motivations. Uh, he is a perfectionist. And you see this, uh, you know, unvarnished portrait of him. So it's, it is out now. It is in limited release. Um, find it, see it, and you will absolutely love hearing him sing. If nothing else, you're going to love hearing him sing. Uh, and then go find his, get his CD. Um, but it's, it's a very special doc, and, and Robert is a very special man. I've known him for many, many years, going back to 1985. And every couple of years, we get a chance to catch up. And uh, this is a great way with Davi's way. Um, so I can't recommend it highly enough. But right now, we're going to totally switch gears as I'm playing with things here in the studio. And we're going to talk the Happy Time Murders because I am truly of in the critical minority for this film. Uh, many critics have given scathing reviews. They can't stand the film. Let me tell you something. Written by Todd Berger, directed by Brian Henson. Yes, of Henson. Uh, Henson and Company, Kermit, Miss Piggy, all of that. Um, Todd Berger has a very distinct sense of humor. I first became acquainted with Todd's work and his sensibilities and sense of humor uh, about six years ago, when he did a film called "It's a Dis- uh, what is it? It's a disaster. Was it? It's a disaster. I have to find my notes. If anybody's looking at the Facebook live stream, you see I got stuff all over the place. Um, <laughs> so yes, it's a disaster. He had done, and it was at a, it, pre- it was at LA Film Festival back in 2012, and his his humor is very irreverent. And as he does here with the Happy Time Murders, he takes irreverence to a new level. It's raucous, it's ribald, it's ridiculously witty fun, it's laugh-out-loud ridiculum. And I just thoroughly enjoyed myself all the way through. Uh, There are no holds barred. Everything is fair game. Uh, With the creation of melding this world of puppets with humans and setting against a crime noir background... And he truly does capture every element necessary for uh, for this film to fit into the a 1940s crime noir thriller. I expected to see Dana Andrews or somebody come walking out on screen. 
that authentic. Uh, we've got voiceover, very much a la noir of the 40s, but also very akin to Jack Webb is Joe Friday with Dragnet. Uh, the premise, it's there are murders. A former puppet TV show, The Happy Time Gang. All of the Happy Time puppets are ending up dead, getting blown away with fluff flying everywhere. And uh, one detective, Phil Phillips, used to be part of the LAPD, teamed up with his former partner, Edwards. But something went down. He got kicked off the force. She hates him. All of this unfolds as part of the story uh, of, what's, of what's happening with the Happy Time murders. And just when you think you have it figured out, you don't have it figured out. The puppetry is amazing. The puppet captain is none other than Kevin Clash, who used to do Elmo. Uh, Kevin is truly a brilliant, brilliant puppeteer and creator. And the fact that he is the puppet captain for all of these other puppeteers is, speaks volumes as to his skills in working with Brian Henson and bringing Todd's vision to life. So just going to give you a feel with some of the clips uh, of our of Todd's and my interview yesterday, starting with the stylization and the score. He jumped right into the score because it truly is a big part and helps set the tone of the film. So take a listen. I am in the critical minority right now. But Happy Time Murders, Todd, it is raucous, it is ribald, it's ridiculously witty fun. There's laugh out loud ridiculum. I love this film. I laughed myself silly. You pushed it to the extremes. But what you did and what Brian did as a director is you treated the puppets like they were human characters so we could really connect to them. Right. I mean, I think it's fascinating that, that you know, the movie starts with pretty much 10 minutes of puppet business. And yeah. Rose McCarthy doesn't even show up for 10 minutes into the movie. And um, it was actually interesting, you know, I talked to Brian at some point during the, uh, the testing process when they were testing this in front of audiences. And he was talking about score options, like what they were going to do for score. And he actually mentioned that, you know, there's several puppet murder scenes throughout the movie. And when the score, when they were using like darker, more thriller type score, the audience actually felt so genuinely bad mm-hmm. for the puppets because they like emotionally were connecting with these puppets and they felt really bad to see them murdered and because they were connecting with them. And so they had to score it, the, the murder scene lighter and funnier to remind you, like, this is absurd. Uh, these puppets are getting massacred and there's like fluff going everywhere and it's supposed to be absurd and funny and to remind the audience they're like oh yeah but but it was they did such a good job with the puppets of making them seem real that people felt really bad and uh which was unexpected well you know and i mean that's one of the things i love with this and your whole the whole stylization number one you get kevin clash in there as your puppet captain you can you can do no better than kevin mm-hmm. i love kevin beyond belief um he he is an incredible puppeteer and creator, and he truly can steer anybody into bringing life into the manipulation and machination and creation of a puppet. 
But where this really stands out is in your stylization and your structure of story. To have this set, you know, like a Dana... I expected Dana Andrews to come walking onto the screen at any minute out of a classic crime noir thriller. Um... Uh, <laughs> You know, you've got your voiceover, you know, deep in the heart of the city. You know, it's, it's yeah. for the younger audiences, it's like Jack Webb is Joe Friday doing a voiceover. Exactly. I mean, just so, because, and bringing that crime noir element to it, that, yeah. that is a, an incredible blend with the whole comedic idea and lighter tone of puppetry. Right. Yeah, and the original draft of the script was even more noirish, like even more over, more of a direct satire of noir, and to the point where, I mean, even in the movie now, there's very little cell phone usage, because the great thing about classic film noir is nobody has cell phones, um, which made the just made it different and more interesting, and so this movie is very light on cell phone usage, like Phil Phillips. I mean, he like, doesn't have a cell phone, you know, because he's a puppet and his little his little foam fingers won't work on it. Uh, so he has to use a landline, you know, in the department or in his home. And uh, it kind of exists in this unusual, you know, of course it's an alternate universe because puppets living with humans, but it's also this alternate kind of noir universe where some of, you know, Phil's secretary, Bubbles, played by Maya Rudolph, is a straight throwback to film noir characters from the 40s and 50s. She doesn't exist in the real world. Like, you would never meet someone like that. And I have to say, from a human standpoint, Maya Rudolph is absolutely killer. She is standout in the film. And for my money, I prefer her performance to that of Melissa McCarthy, who actually has the starring human role in the film. Um, But part and parcel is the actual thriller aspect of the film. Take a listen to how Todd expanded on that with what Brian Henson was looking for. It was important to Brian um, to actually have a, 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 a mystery, like to actually have a plot. Like we didn't want to just make it a serial killer movie like Seven or something, with, or The Snowman, where there's just like a crazy killer going around mm-hmm. murdering puppets. Like Brian was very uh, intent on this should actually be a throwback to old noir plots where it's, it's personal to the main character and it's kind of a little overly complicated. Like you know, when you, when you watch the multi Tolkien or the Big Sleep or something, the movie ends and you think, wait, what happened? How did who what? Yeah, and we were that's what we were going for. It's like a throwback to those plots where halfway through the movie you realize that you know the two separate. Uh, investigation plots are connected and when the movie ends you realize oh oh wait what like what happened like you should want to go back and think about it Uh, and hopefully hopefully uh, people do so of course before we're melding puppetry and crime noir and murder mystery where the heck do you get the idea for this world and for the happy time murders take a listen this is so daunting. I know it took you 16 years from your first idea of this back yes. when you were in college with D. Yeah. Until this final. What amazes me is this didn't even go before the camera until last summer, uh-huh. and it's already out now, a year later. 
and a process like this, I know, is so time-intensive. What was that final, once you had a final script, or were you retooling that script even through production, depending on what would work with the puppetry and what wouldn't? Because I know a lot of it is dependent upon movements and the expressiveness that they can get with the puppet eyes and replacing eyeballs and doing all of this kind of stuff that Henson is so Henson people are so known for. Right. So I'm curious how expedient the actual process was, or were you still fine-tuning and honing this script once shooting started? Well, so, you know, when Dee and I first came up with the idea, D. Robert, Robertson and I, like, the original plan was we were going to make this small little indie movie for, a, like, $25,000. Sure. We are going to go out, and it's going to be this, like, really weird... Uh, meet the Fables esque dark, <laughs> edgy. It was, it was pretty much going to be like a drama, um, and there, and so we were going to take it seriously. And the only reason, you know, really it's funny is because half the characters are puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were going to take it really seriously, and and then we quickly realized that nobody wanted to make that movie because it's too weird, and no one would even give us twenty five thousand dollars. Uh, <laughs> so we like okay, and we tried to set it up in a couple places, and people were just like it's too weird. But at that time. You know, we were like, okay, we're going to do this ourselves. So there were only five or six puppet characters in the movie. Like, we kept it pretty tight as to the main character and kept it simple because, you know, we're going to have to make it cheap and easy. And then, years later, we set it up at the, the Henson Company. And when Brian Henson came in and the Henson Company came in, they, they said, oh, no, we can expand the world. Uh, because not you know they're the best of the best of making puppets, mm-hmm. but also they had been doing this live show called Puppet Up for yep. years, and they had built sixty or seventy or eighty puppets like they had for this show. And when they took on the Happy Time Records, they said we're going to expand the world, and so we want background. You know, when there's a scene in a diner, like yes, there are two main character puppets talking, but also like who's in the background. Like, what funny things can be going on in the background, and how can we test the limits of having puppets in this world doing things you've never seen before? Like, when Melissa McCarthy's character goes to the beach, like, let's have a puppet weightlifter working out, you know? And and how do we do that? And so they were really great at looking at the movie and going through the script and saying, how can we add other puppet characters? But then what's funny is that I have no idea how puppets work, so, so I would say, you know, oh, Phil takes a puff of a cigarette. And Brian would have to be like, just so you know, every time Phil's smoking, it takes two extra puppeteers, and it's way more complicated, uh, because puppets don't smoke, you know? It's like one of those little things that I don't even think about, because, you know, I'm just the writer. Um, but he's like, yeah, in the script, you have the puppet run across the street. But... But that's really complicated. And some of the things they wanted to take on as challenges, and there were other little things where Brian would be like, yeah, if we just have him, you know, take the elevator instead of the stairs, that saves so much time and money. So do we really need to see his legs in that scene? Um, and then once Melissa McCarthy came on board, you know, she, um, she has a very, you know, different, not different, but like, her style of comedy is very improvisational mm-hmm. and she really liked to you know riff with the puppeteer and the other actors and which 
for puppets, it's hard. It's yeah. hard to improv because it's very technical. You often have one puppeteer is, you know, doing the left hand, and there's another puppeteer who's literally called the right hand who's doing the right hand. And, you know, two or three puppeteers are maybe uh, manipulating the puppet. So when you improv, you all have to be on the same page, mm-hmm. you know? And so when Melissa came on board and, you know, while shooting the movie, that was ever-changing, too, because they had to figure out how to shoot the movie so that the puppeteers and the actors could have the freedom to improv uh, and make the movie uh, that they were trying to make. And uh, so, yeah, it was an ever-changing process throughout the year. And there will be more from Todd Berger on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this week. But that is now all the time we have today with our third ever expanded edition. Go see Searching. Go see Davi's Way. Please, please ignore a lot of the naysayers with the Happy Time Murders. It is irreverent comedy. It is dark comedy, if but with a light visual tone and some fabulous felt. Um, give it a shot, please. It really is laugh out loud hilarious. Uh, but so that is all the time we have. We are not doing a show next week because it seems that most talent wants to take Labor Day off before they start heading out to Toronto for the Toronto Film Festival. So we will be back in two weeks and we've already got some fun people lined up then. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.